Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Moment and Mobility series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab, a New Books Network partnership, provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arijan. Today, I'm joined by Ziad Fahmi, a professor of Modern Middle East History at Cornell University's Department of Near Eastern Studies. We'll be talking about his book, Street Sounds, Listening to Everyday Life in Modern Egypt, published by Stanford University Press in 2020. Thank you very much, Dr. Fahmi, for joining us today. Thank you, Eliza. Thanks for inviting me. Um, So, how did you conceive of this project, and particularly, how did you decide to home in on sound? So, uh, the initial idea for for the book, uh, for Street Sounds, um, came to me roughly around in early 2011 or so, um, as I was finishing the final revisions of my previous book, Ordinary Egyptians. Uh, Because I was dealing uh, in that book, in the first book, uh, primarily with recorded music, uh, vernacular theater, zagal, which is uh, colloquial poetry, um, and other oral uh, sources, um, I became more consciously aware, really, of, of the importance of sound and listening um, to not only the project at hand, uh, but more broadly to history writing in general. So it really became obvious to me at the time uh, that more sounded histories of Egypt and the Middle East were sorely needed. Um, and uh, as often happens, uh, uh, sometimes sort of uh, you know, good luck intervened for me. And uh, in 2012, uh, the Society of Humanities at Cornell um, had a, 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 the, the, its theme was uh, uh, sound, culture, theory, practice, and politics. And I applied for this fellowship. Um, and my fellowship at the Society uh, for that year was uh, really, really instrumental in sort of exposing me uh, to sound studies uh, in general as a field. And uh, it was very important in, in sort of forging my ideas about sounds and soundscapes. And I started thinking about um, examining uh, uh, the soundscapes of, of Egypt in the early 20th century. Um, and after that, I started, you know, I wrote some grant proposals and, and uh, started my project. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it seems like a rather unorthodox project uh, for a history book, if I may. Um, so, and building on that, um, in the introduction, you underline the importance of listening to the historical resources. And, you know, I found that very provocative 
uh, especially in terms of methods and methodology. So I'm wondering, what does listening to the historical resources look like methodologically? And, you know, especially when you translate this into a book, when you write about sound, how does one write a history that one can listen to rather than just read? This, in a way, for many people, seems a bit counterintuitive, but it's really uh, uh, a lot simpler than than uh, than it seems. Uh, to 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 paraphrase Mark Smith, who's a, a sensory historian that specializes in nineteenth century American history, uh, sensory history is really it's easy to do. It's 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 low hanging fruit. It doesn't really require special archives or actual listening to historical recordings. Uh, though, if you happen to work, of course, in, in the sec- during the second half of the 20th century and you have some of these recordings, that that would be helpful, of course. But, but sensory history is really ubiquitous. It's, it's in all of the sources that historians have been using for generations. Um, so a historian just needs to attune themselves to the multiple uh, sensory references that are literally everywhere uh, in the archives, as well as in newspapers, uh, memoirs, travel journals, etc. Uh, so all texts have uh, sensory references uh, and make uh, sensory observations. Um, of course, human beings typically use all five senses to describe the world around them and um, often will relay that description in the historical text that they produce. So the, the real trick is to be sensitive uh, to these sensory data and make use of them uh, in, in the historical analysis. Um, so people will, will relay how they you know, heard uh, the world uh, around them uh, uh, and how smell, touch, and taste informed how they experience uh, the world. Uh, so to me, at least, what makes these uh, written sensory experiences important uh, is that they almost always describe uh, first-hand, close-up, street-level, intimate experiences. Uh, so in order for uh, a person to actually listen to a conversation or to describe an olfactory experience, they have to be sitting or standing nearby. So um, I literally have yet to find a source that doesn't really refer to the senses in some form. Um, because you know we live in a multi-sensory world, and and so did the people of the past. And and writing uh, a history that attempts to describe this uh, multi-sensory environment can only enrich and and nuance our understanding uh, of of the past. So in a way, a sen- writing a sensory history is more of being attuned to absolutely you know, what is there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's more about sort of uh, picking up our radar a bit and being se- sensitive to uh, 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 all of these sensory inputs that are there in, in the very same text that we've been uh, looking at all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And, you know, you touched upon how, um, in a way, you know, ordinary people describe those sensory experiences. But in your book, you see a lot of you know, like newspaper articles or official documents that reference senses as well, which I found very intriguing. It's a different lens to look at those sorts of documents, right? Absolutely. And that was always part of the conversation. Um, and in the, and generally in, in, in the public sphere among intellectuals and, and uh, especially the Egyptian middle classes. And, and this is one of the arguments that I make in the book uh, that uh, especially when you're using a, a sensory history in a particular way, uh, it makes it uh, 
uh, easier to get to, um, especially middle class construction and middle class formation, because often the middle classes uh, use the census in order to differentiate themselves from the masses. And in doing so, uh, they, of course, from their own perspective, uh, they describe the, the sounds and, 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 and the smells and, and the taste of the streets. Uh, so you definitely uh, 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 get at it from, from this perspective, and, and it gives you a more uh, embodied way to, to examine class formation. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, one, like you mentioned, the class formation aspect, and another, you know, very powerful aspect of your book relates to uh, modernization and state power. And you highlight the dominant prioritization of sites in theories that deal with this. Um, so how does shifting the emphasis from sight to sound expand our understanding of modernization as state power? And, you know, particularly, I wonder how Egyptian cities provide us insight into this broader question. Yeah. Um, so as, as you alluded to, um, often the, the theoretical frameworks for really understanding modern state power uh, invoke a, a distant and strictly visual understanding of power. Um, and so this, this bird's eye view um, almost exclusively focuses on the, the plans, the maps and the so-called gaze of the state. But when we get to the street level, by definition, it is more it is a more sort of embodied affair where all the senses are involved. This obviously applies to um, uh, the actual realities on the ground with the actual enforcement, if it does take place uh, by uh, uh, the state police, for example. Uh, but often there's there's also sort of a, a multi-sensory vocabulary that is also reflected in the discourses that deal with the streets uh, and with everyday people, uh, like we talked about in the, in the previous question. Uh, so, for example, uh, public noise was usually perceived as, as dangerously chaotic and, and socially disruptive, um, and, and, and it was vulgarized as culturally backward, um, except, of course, when that noise was produced by the state. Um, or uh, when it was uh, invoked as, as a part of a sort of a, a socially brought, um, uh, uh, socially broad, excuse me, sort of nationalist uh, uh, mobilization. Um, so, with few exceptions, especially when when dealing with uh, discussions about modernity, um, the Egyptian media sort of perpetrated a, a silencing campaign, really tar- uh, targeting the urban masses. Uh, so the, the sounds of, of beggars, uh, street vendors, entertainers, and, and a host of uh, itinerant poor were especially maligned. Um, and the state was often mobilized to regulate and, and silence uh, the streets. Um, also, as I, as I explored throughout the book, um, the, the, the modern transformation of Egypt's uh, street environment from electric lighting in the streets to automobile traffic and the growth of a sort of a modern uh, mass transportation network uh, greatly impacted daily life in an obviously embodied and multi-sensory way. And and that dramatically changed how the streets functioned, uh, uh, felt, uh, and sounded to to ordinary people. So I guess to to, uh, reiterate, a sensory approach to the sources sort of reveals a great deal more about what happened at the ground level. Uh, among the thousands of ordinary people sort of commuting, walking, shopping, selling their goods and services, etc. 
Yeah, and not to give away too much from the book, but I was wondering if you could give us a few examples about the relationship between these new sort of technologies like electricity or uh, modes of transportation and those shifts in everyday lives. Yeah, I mean, um, you wouldn't really have a regular nightlife, uh, for example, with, without uh, uh, electricity. Um, uh, uh, the the building of uh, of of effective uh, uh, street lights, but also the lighting of uh, theaters, and 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 eventually, of course, the creation of of, of movie theaters, the use of loudspeakers, um, to uh, uh, without without this taking taking shape, uh, that didn't really exist, and that allowed people to. Uh, stay up a little bit later at night, for example, and of course that has a lot of sensory implications and noise implications as well. Um, all the new uh, transportation networks that were developed, especially the tramway, which I talk about a lot more in uh, uh, in, in the book, uh, dramatically changed how uh, uh, people uh, commuted to to work, but also at the same time. Uh, it, it allowed people to, to use the tramway for a variety of other reasons. And so uh, street hawkers, for example, uh, made use of, of, of the tramways quite effectively um, in a way that, that tramways weren't really intended to be used. Um, and so uh, uh, they would sell their goods, of course, in, in, in the tram, and, and they, without you know, paying for the ticket, they would go in and out uh, and tram surf, if you will, um, so a lot of those changes were intended to be used in a particular way, but everyday people use them for, for their own purposes. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. I love that your book also shows that state power is never omnipotent. And, you know, you also mentioned that ordinary people uh, find ways to reclaim the city in return. Um, so I have two questions based on that. First off, and maybe this is a bit about your previous project, how do you define you know, ordinary people, which is a term you use a lot in the book? And then what insights does a history of mundane street sounds offer in terms of how ordinary people reclaim cities or appropriate, appropriate space? Um, to me, it's... Uh, you know, pedestrians, uh, it's uh, street hawkers. It's uh, the, the one thing that really tied this book together uh, is an examination of street life. Uh, so anyone who makes use of the streets to make a living um, and, and to engage with, with society to me is, is, is someone uh, that is integral to uh, ordinary life uh, in, in, in Egyptian society. Um, and what was the, the second part of, of your question? Um, the second part is that, um, so like what are some ways in which, you know, ordinary people appropriate uh, cities? Uh, and, you know, how does a history of a Monday street sounds help us sort of see that? Yeah, they... Uh, they appropriate it by by using them, uh, by making use of them in, in their everyday lives, and uh, as I alluded to, often that's uh, it, it's for their own purposes. Um, and uh, in Egypt, in particular, where and that's certainly still uh, is the case, uh, there's a very large sort of informal economy, and people have to rely on the streets to make a living. 
Um, and so uh, regardless of what laws are being set up uh, by the state in order to control the streets, people uh, make use of it in order to uh, uh, first make a living, uh, but also for, for everyday uh, 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 celebrations and, and, and mourning, uh, etc., uh, so often Egyptian weddings and funerals uh, take place in, in the streets, for example, um, despite the fact that uh, often that's discouraged by the state. Um, um, again, there's, there's always this tug of war uh, over control of, of the streets, um, and the state often uh, wants to regulate uh, street hawkers, uh, street celebrations, um, in different times in history, of course, there are curfews. Uh, there's there's ways to try to uh, control the streets, but almost always uh, people resist that, and and often these encounters are are very much enmeshed in in, in sort of a, a sensory history, and that's the one way, uh, or one of the ways I think I probably that you can that historians can get to this, um, because by listening in. Uh, to the sources and by examining references uh, uh, to a lot of what was happening uh, on a sensory level, uh, immediately you are you come closer uh, to the street level. Yeah, that's wonderful, and you know, I just really admire your embodied approach to history. Um, and speaking of embodiment, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit more to the gendered aspect of your book. Um, particularly, you know, how does an embodied approach to history illuminate the role that gender plays in these everyday appropriation of streets? Yes. Uh, so a sensory historical approach really lends itself, as I just talked about, to sort of street-level analysis and details uh, uh, what some historians uh, uh, have suspected all along, that that, that women in, in, in 19th and, and early 20th century Egypt were always an integral part of the Egyptian public sphere. Uh, and you can, you can see that when, in reading the book. Uh, by, by simply zooming in and listening in to, to the streets themselves, uh, you, you hear the sounds of, of, of women who are part of this street life and, and uh, uh, the female street hawkers and merchants and, and beggars and Quran reciters, but uh, um, also female shoppers, pedestrians and, and commuters. Um, it, it also, the sensory approach also uh, in many ways um, uh, counters the, the common misconception that there was a, a, a sort of a distinctive split between the private and public sphere. And, and so as I demonstrate throughout the book, uh, uh, walls were literally sort of paper thin and windows, doors, and balconies were almost always open uh, and acted as uh, sort of sensory portals for conversations and, and other interactions. Um, rooftops, courtyards, neighborhood alleys also function as, as these liminal spaces uh, that were neither uh, private nor public. Uh, and, and allowed for, for conversations, all kinds of interactions. Um, and when you use a sensory approach, you really uh, hone in on, on all of this. Um, so in, until, for example, the, the 1930s and 40s, uh, there was both, uh, I think, you know, class and, and gender mixing anxieties uh, over people's interactions in, in the streets, at least in, in, in the Egyptian media. 
maybe until the 30s. Um, this was really especially true in, in relation to uh, 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 popular public expressions of joy during traditional sort of music-infused uh, celebrations. Um, and, uh, uh, for example, uh, utilations that take place at, 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 uh, at weddings, births, and, and circumcisions, and so forth, were uh, frowned upon by, by the middle classes and, and the press, but yet they were prevalent uh, uh, throughout the, the Egyptian streets. Um, and uh, almost always, these were these were female voices, um, and uh, and so when you were listening in, that that sort of changes the dynamics, uh, both of, of of what we considered private and and, and public, uh, but also um, uh, it shows that that women were not just visible, uh, but they were certainly audible uh, throughout the Egyptian streets. Um, this was, of course. Also the case uh, in, in traditional sort of uh, uh, funerals with somber chants and, and, and shrieks and wails and, and, and deaths and funerals. Um, and, and many, many of these uh, traditions uh, were continually attacked by both religious and secular conservatives. Um, and yet again, um, most of these critiques were sensory. And, and so uh, again, so this highlights the sensory aspects even more. Um, as often they, they admonish the loudness and musicality and the general embodiment of this gender mixing that, that takes place during these, uh, during these events. Um, so uh, I think a sensory approach really highlights these, uh, a lot of these early 20th century uh, uh, public female voices. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, you know, as you mentioned a little bit, it's also a good sort of window into different kinds of conflicts within a society in the everyday. That's fascinating. Um, so I was wondering, how do you see your work in conversation with broader studies of sensorium? And, you know, by that I mean not just history, but across humanities and social sciences, as well as within the Middle East and beyond. Yeah, uh... I I can't really like fully answer this question yet. I think since the, the impact of the book really I, will not be known for for at least a, a probably a couple of years, and I'm I'm shying away from uh, really just l- maybe exaggerating its its importance. I I, I uh, this is a novel approach for a historian of modern Egypt, um, and so. Um, I'm, I'm sort of treading carefully. Uh, also, at the same time, I, I, I don't necessarily consider this book as entirely sort of a, a, a sensory studies project. Um, and I mean, it is somewhat, but it's, it's, to me, it's, a, it's more of a, a social uh, cultural history of everyday people that, that uh, actively and, and purposely uses uh, a sensory approach. And, and I chose it uh, not just because it was new, but because I thought that it was uh, the best tool available uh, uh, for, to do the job for sort of an examination of, of street life. Uh, so I, I hope that uh, both historians of the senses and, and historians of the Middle East can, can make use of this book as, as an example of how to study class and class formation. Uh, as well as, as as one way of studying uh, street life, um, yeah, I I don't know um, you know it, what impact it will have um, in in a in a broader sense. 
Uh, I'm, uh, I'm hoping that those that study uh, sensory history in, 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 in other areas uh, will find value in, 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 in my work. Um, but again, uh, I guess uh, I'm sort of uh, waiting and, and, and anticipating that there'll be more uh, connections uh, with sensory historians and, and, and others in the future. Yeah, that's very fair. Um... There's the train. I love it. <laughs> it sounds like it's part of a movie. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I think the train know, is, it, is beeping it, in approval. I think they, they're sounding the horn in approval. They're like soundscapes. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is very fitting that as we're having this conversation about you know soundscapes of everyday life, um, the train made an appearance. <laughs> um, I hope the editor, when they edit this this uh, audio, will keep that little soundbite of the train. So this is uh, I'm appealing to you. So. <laughs> yeah, you know this is a sensory podcast interview. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, I'm also wondering, have you thought about how you know this this historical study relates to contemporary everyday life in Egypt and its soundscapes? Yes, uh, absolutely. You can't really, it, it, even as I was writing it, and uh, part of the book was was written as I was doing my research in in, in Cairo. Um, and a lot of the, the tensions that I describe in the book, uh, between the state and, and the street hawkers, for example, uh, is something that is very much ongoing and was always ongoing. Even, uh, I remember distinctly, uh, when I was doing my, even all the way back to my dissertation research, uh, there was always this tension, um, between the state and, and street hawkers. Even in the used uh, bookstall market in Esbekeia in Cairo, um, often uh, uh, the state authorities will, will clamp down and come in because the, the, the sellers had these small shacks selling their books, but they weren't allowed to put place their books on the sidewalk. Um, and, uh, but what it, interestingly, uh, the way that they uh, uh, countered uh, some of this enforcement by the state was... Uh, uh, through cell phones and almost immediately one of the, uh, they have someone watching out at the police station as they see the undercover officers move towards uh, the bookstalls immediately cell phone search starts uh, ringing and then everybody else moves into action. Uh, and, and, and so there's this cat and mouse game uh, that's, uh, that's ongoing. Um, also some of the street hawkers that I actually, that I describe in the book, um, they still, exist obviously in Cairo um uh particularly the the Robabikia seller uh and Robabikia in, in colloquial Egyptian is is derived uh from the Italian word uh, Robavikia which which means uh, old clothes or old things um and uh the 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 the, uh, the call of the Robabikia sellers uh, is still very much prevalent, uh, both in Alexandria and, and in Cairo. Um, so a lot of those realities are, are still there on the ground. There's still very much uh, class tensions, and there's still very much the middle classes often define themselves uh, using uh, uh, sort of a, a sensory ways to, to, dis- to describe how distinct they are uh, from uh, uh, the working class. Um, 
So uh, that's something that, that certainly uh, uh, lives on. Yeah, and maybe that's a new conversation to be had between, you know, scholars doing sensory work in Egypt right now and, you know, your work in your book. <laughs> Um, so my last question is about um, what is next for you? Do you have any new projects or questions in mind? And I don't know if you had, you know, any time to think about this given the current conjuncture. But <laughs> yes, um, well, I actually I, I have uh, because I, in a way, I started doing uh, research for it uh, as I was doing research for this project. Um, so it, it also relates to sound somewhat, uh, but it goes back to media, which was uh, uh, my first project where I, where I talked about early media capitalism in Egypt. Uh, the, my next project is going to be on, uh, it will be history of Egyptian radio. Um, and uh, so in some ways, uh, it's, it's more traditional in the sense that it'll... it'll uh, 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 tell the story about the origins of Egyptian radio. Uh, most likely, I'll I'll stop uh, in 1952, so it'll cover uh, from 1925 to the early 50s. Um, and uh, I've already started writing. Um, there, there, I have a, 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 I'm, I'm writing an, an article that's going to be most likely chapter one of this of this book um, that covers the period right before Egyptian state radio, where there was a lot of uh, private radio stations in Egypt. Um, and I pinpointed it, um, there was probably a dozen or so from 1928 until they were uh, formally shut down by the Egyptian government in May of 1934. Um, so th the book project um, will cover this early history, but then it'll focus on uh, early Egyptian state radio from 34 onwards. Um, and... Um, Surprisingly, there hasn't been really um, a monograph examining uh, Egyptian radio, despite its importance for a variety of, of obvious of obvious reasons. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, in a way, it's it's connected because sound is a part of it, and uh, I reference radio obviously uh, in, in in street sounds. Uh, but this will be devoted on on, uh, on on Egyptian state radio and its own programming. Um, so, uh, hopefully, I will. Uh, uh, start writing more in full force in my next sabbatical. So in uh, 300 days. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I'm looking forward to reading that book as well. Um, so thank you very much, Professor Fahmi, for joining us today and for your insights. Thank you, Aliza. This was truly a pleasure. So I'm Aliza Arijan. This discussion of street sounds, listening to everyday life in modern Egypt, published by Stanford University Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.